we found that in most successful companies, culture change was absolutely leader-led. It's hard to do culture change if the CEO and the leadership isn't on board. It's almost never going to work if that's the case. But assuming they are on board, they need the cooperation of many people throughout the organization. They can't just do it themselves without others not buying into the culture change. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Modern Business Operations. My name is Sagi. I'm the CEO and founder of Tonkin. And today, I have the pleasure to host Kevin Oaks from the Institute for Corporate Productivity. Kevin, thanks so much for joining. Oh, thanks for having me, Sagi. It's a great time talking to you, and there's a lot of things I want to go through, but maybe we can start with just a little bit of background about yourself and really how did you got to start or run the company and anything around your background? Yeah, sure. I'll give you just a quick little background. I've been an entrepreneur at heart for most of my career. I started an e-learning company back in the 90s before the web really was even popular. We started doing e-learning on CD-ROM but eventually became a fairly large web-based learning company doing courses for large corporations. At the time, we were partnered with the first company that Paul Allen founded after Microsoft. And Paul approached me after working with them for a couple of years and said, hey, I'd really like to combine the two companies and IPO it. And so that's what we did. And I became CEO of the company and that company was called click to learn we eventually merged that company with another public company to form some total systems. I ran that company for a while, and that was a very large, and still is today, a large talent suite company. But I left there in the mid-2000s to start my current company, which is the Institute for Corporate Productivity. We shortened that to I4CP. And today we're doing more HR research than anyone on the planet. It's always with a business lens of what are high-performing organizations doing differently than low-performing organizations with their HR or people practices. And while we uncover a lot of best practices, what we hang our hat on are next practices. And we define those as practices where we see a real strong correlation to bottom-line business impact, but not a lot of companies have yet implemented those practices. So we have a lot of topics that we research, and I've got a team of analysts that every day are out gathering data on everything under the human capital umbrella. And one topic that's been very popular is culture overall. A couple of years ago, I was very involved in a research project we did on culture change. I was fascinated with it because most companies who set out to change their culture fail, and they fail miserably. We found uh, only about 15%, 15 to 20% actually succeeded changing their culture. So what we wanted to do was understand, is there something that we could take from those successful companies and give to all organizations as a roadmap for culture change? And from that created the book Culture Renovation, which I published, which has been very, very successful out there. We're on our fifth or sixth printing of the book right now and a lot of Fortune 500 companies and other companies are using it to help change their culture. And it's really a blueprint of 18 action steps that our research uncovered that organizations can take to make effective change and create a healthier culture overall. So that's been a fun project. And I continue to do a lot of work, as does my firm, on anything under that topic of culture. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations on everything. You know, this is very incredible stuff. You touched on a topic that we actually cover a lot, his podcast with is change and 
the cost of change and the things that it entail. And a lot of time that dissonance between everyone wants progress, everyone wants things to be better, but not a lot of people are willing to pay the cost of changing their ways to get better or to do things better. So maybe if you don't mind, we can start a little bit one step deeper with the book, because I think this is really an intriguing part of this. What is the synopsis without revealing too much? When we began this research project, like a lot of people, we were calling it culture transformation, which if you Google that term, you'll come up with millions of hits. And you know, a lot of people have written about transformation. As we got into it, though, we recognized that those successful companies weren't transforming their cultures at all. They weren't creating something completely different. Instead, what they were doing, like you would with an old house, they were very carefully renovating their cultures to create future value. And by renovating, we mean they were keeping what made them unique to begin with and what would be hard to replace, you know, just like an old house. But they were updating and improving their culture for the future. And so renovating became a much more acceptable term or approachable term for folks. And using that theme, we took those 18 action steps that I mentioned and put them into three different phases. The first phase is plan. The second phase is build. And the third phase is maintain, just like you would approach a house renovation. And it was interesting because the plan phase is one that a lot of companies tend to either rush through or skip altogether. You know, oftentimes a very ambitious CEO who wants to change culture. And so they kind of dive right into it and start making changes without taking the necessary steps to plan that out. It'd be just like going into that house and knocking down walls without any kind of plan. You're eventually going to knock down a load bearing wall and take the whole thing down. We've seen that with some corporations where CEOs did kind of do damage to the whole structure just by not carefully planning. And so I'll give you a couple of examples in the plan phase of why this is so important. The first thing you need to do is listen. I advise senior teams of this all the time. The worst thing a CEO and a management team can do is lock themselves in a conference room and decide amongst themselves what the culture is today, what needs to be changed, what's good, because they'll get it wrong. A lot of times, Things get filtered by the time they get up to senior management, and they don't know all the issues. And so that's why it's important to do a deep listening project and really understand what the sentiment is throughout the organization. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Technology is helping tremendously these days with natural language processing and other tools and techniques to really get at what are some of those issues. But until you understand those issues, you really shouldn't do anything. Once you do understand those issues, that's when you can begin to set the vision and think about how you want to go about doing this. But one of the more important steps in the whole process I really like is in the planning phase, and it's identifying the influencers and energizers. We found that in most successful companies, culture change was absolutely leader-led. It's hard to do culture change if the CEO and the leadership isn't on board is almost never going to work if that's the case. But assuming they are on board, they need the cooperation of many people throughout the organization. They can't just do it themselves without others not buying into the culture change. And so the identifying influencers and energizers was important to create sort of a culture cabinet, as Microsoft called it, or culture ambassadors, which other companies call it, where you have these people who understand what you're trying to do, but they also have the respect and the influence of those around them to make it happen. Now, again, if you ask senior leaders who are the influencers in the company, they're also going to get that wrong. 
because they tend to think in the terms of hierarchy and they think about just who's at the top of the hierarchy. And some of those people are probably influencers, but our research has shown they'll get more than half of it wrong. Usually they'll only get about a third correct. And that's because a lot of influencers are buried in the hierarchy. And if you can think about any place you've ever worked, there are certain people that others turn to for subject matter expertise, or they just turn to for energy. You know, you talk to certain people and you walk away from that conversation kind of fired up and energized. But not only are they buried in the hierarchy, sometimes they're introverts, right? They're not people that necessarily would naturally stand out. We use a technique called organizational network analysis, which is a surveying technique to uncover the top influencers and energizers inside the company. And once you've uncovered those, those are the people you want to enlist as a culture ambassador to carry out the culture change you want to see. Until you get those people on board, though, you're going to have a tough time getting buy-in throughout the organization. So that was another really important step in the plan phase among the six steps that we had there. From there, we move into the build phase where we do a number of things to create that co-creation mindset. A lot of companies will do culture hackathons, just like you do programming hackathons, but they're focused on what do we change in our culture. They will make sure that they are training leaders on the desired behaviors that they want to see throughout the culture. We see this all the time where a company has their values on a PowerPoint or framed on a wall but then the leaders do the exact opposite or don't really live the values and behave the way that they're expected to. And that is very detrimental to a culture generally. We've seen a lot of successful companies put a lot of effort in making sure that leaders walk the talk. And so that's another big aspect of that build phase. And from there, we move into the maintain phase. Just like an old house, if you don't maintain everything you were doing, it's really easy to kind of drift back to the way things used to be. And so a lot of effort has to be put into the maintenance side but, you know, it's also important to recognize you're never done with culture change. You don't just plant a flag in the ground and declare victory. You've got to constantly work at it. And I profile a number of companies in the book that are doing a great job at constantly working at their culture. I wonder what type of situation trigger companies to go through. To basically come and say, we should do culture transformation or in the new phrase you guys coined, culture innovation. What is the most common situations that that happens? Yeah, there's some very common triggers. Poor performance is one of those. So when a company goes through a period of down quarters or a series of time where they have poor performance, that's when they often will say, we have to change our culture. A CEO change is a very common trigger. When you bring in a new CEO, they will want to do things differently. Usually there was a reason why a new CEO comes in and they'll want to put their stamp on the company's culture. Another one is acquisitions. And we see that a lot when you do a big acquisition, you want to combine the two cultures. And so there's a new path that is set. I'll tell you, of all of those, the best time to change your culture is when everything is going well. It's not waiting for one of those big time events to change the culture. It's taking a look at your company and recognizing that, hey, change is constant and only the paranoid survive, as Andy Grove once said. So you want to make sure that you're constantly updating your culture for the future. And when things are going well, it's a hell of a lot easier to do it. So I'm always advising companies, take a look at your culture now, because we're seeing so many different changes out in the environment today, and it's not going to stop. That's going to constantly be in movement. So make sure that your culture is ready for it. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin is the operating system for business operations, providing businesses with the building blocks to orchestrate any process with no code or change management required. 
Contact us at Tonkin.com to learn how you can build complex processes fast. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the Adaptive Ops community at operations.community. That's a great segue to talk a little bit about all the change. We're recording this in end of April 2023, but right? obviously there was a lot of change going on with the pandemic and remote work and so on, you know, specifically on human capital and just in general, how to leverage and create culture that leverage that type of changes versus getting affected negatively by it. But I think, you know, now in this time of year, it's also very clear that another big change is coming with AI and large language models. What are you guys seeing today that is worth sharing, but also how departments and companies as a whole, you guys suggest to address this? Yeah, there's no shortage of things to address right now. You hit the nail on the head with the future of work and how just our work models have changed over the last couple of years. You know, we certainly got used to having remote workers. And today, most companies are trying to get workers back into the work site or the office. There's been a lot of pressure even from certain cities, even the federal government has provided a lot of pressure, try to get people back in. Some of that's real estate driven, but a lot of it's just CEO driven. CEOs feel like their company would be better off with people in person. And that's not necessarily what the data says. And so we've cautioned companies to think carefully about how you're doing this. I think anytime you try to force employees to do something, there's going to be a natural negative reaction to that, which can be detrimental to culture overall. Generally speaking, we found the healthiest cultures are providing much more autonomy to the workforce to let them be productive in the ways that work for them, to be uh, goal-driven, not to focus on where somebody is sitting you know, on a particular day. But beyond that, generative AI is certainly creating a lot of questions and a lot of interest. And I think the smart organizations are recognizing that there are processes that are very mundane, very rote processes that we can automate by using AI and making our workforce more productive as a result. It's really not about replacing people per se, although I do expect we will see roles replaced by AI in the future. It's more about how do we make the current roles more efficient? And I think that's already been happening. We're certainly in very early stages right now, but it's just fascinating all the ways that people are using ChatGPT or other generative AI solutions to make their lives easier. That will continue for the next few years for sure. Again, we talk about start this with change and culture and kind of like how this all comes together. But what I found interesting for people I've been talking recently, and I guess this is true for every new technology, but things are moving so fast with generative AI. And in general, again, not too dissimilar from what happened when COVID came out, how we kind of moved from like one reality to a completely different reality in a matter of weeks. I think similarly here, things are moving really fast, but it's polar opposites folks that are actively looking to embed. And by the way, I'm talking about Fortune 500 companies can take two of them. One is like actively looking to see where they can infuse those new technologies into the work versus some others that are creating rules and regulations. to even banning it altogether. Yeah. Exactly. They literally prosecute users and employees that are you know, there to try to leverage. That's pretty extreme. And so I don't know what you guys are seeing from within the research or if you have like some active research you're going about it, but I feel like there's a real tension here that I'm really curious of what you guys seeing in the market, but also like compared to previous lips, if you will, what does history tell us? 
Yeah, we are actively researching this, but previous research that we've done on just the subject of change has been very clear. Low-performing companies are companies where the workforce fears change. They look at change as either a nuisance or something that they would prefer not happen. It's very clear that that is a hallmark of companies that have lower revenue, lower profitability, lower market share, et cetera. The high-performing organizations tend to not only look at change as normal, as just something that's going to always happen, but they look at it also as an opportunity that they see out in the market and they want to take advantage of it. And so I think right now what's going on with generative AI is a perfect example. I think the smart companies are really trying to figure out how do we leverage this? How do we take advantage of this going forward? Where, you know, you see a lot of companies that are banning or putting the rules around it. Those are the ones generally, I think, that don't have a change-ready workforce. Workforce that really accepts change or an attitude in the company that accepts change. Now, this all is different depending on industry and, you know, depending what type of company you are, et cetera. So it's not across the board, but I think time will show that companies that kind of embraced the new technology or the new way of working will generally come out on top. That's generally what's happened in the past, right? We've seen that with most technologies. And so I think that's probably what we'll see here. But again, this one's pretty different. You know, ChatGPT is the fastest growing app in history. And we're seeing adoption and just change in this generative AI industry happen so much more quickly than we've seen in other new technologies. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens over time. To be fair and clear, I'm a big believer in this upside. My company's invested in bringing some of those solutions to market. But I do actually want to play the devil advocate on the other side and ask when you think about other leaps, whether it's as big of a leap, you know, and I think I won't be original here comparing it to the internet and mobile. It's all like big leaps. I feel like there was a lot of resistance, maybe not fully understanding the potential, coming from not fully understanding the potential, a lot more close to home for some people. I think you hit the nail at the head, which is even though it might alter some jobs, and maybe even eliminate versions of particular jobs, it is by definition just going to accelerate productivity and kind of what we're doing with our time. It feels like most people can see their job be taken away from them. And obviously, you know, AutoGPT comes out. Again, it's literally every week we record an episode and there's like a completely different new thing to talk about coming from the human capital aspect and culture aspect of it. How do you help explain to cultures that are maybe in the between, right? They're not the top performers where it's easy for them to just like embrace change. So like the low performers where like change is a bad word, they're in that spectrum and some people are excited about it, trying to push this forward and some people are resisting and really coming from a protective mode. What works or what can you tell those people? I think education is a big part of this. Obviously, the folks that are worried about generative AI are worried about their IP getting out of the organization and being part of the engine going forward and part of the learning process. I mean, look, there's lots of areas where your IP isn't protected, right? So you've got to educate you know, the workforce around that real problem, around that real threat, and then take steps to license the product so that you don't have it being released out into the world. But, you know, like every technology, I would also educate people just around the fact that when the railroads were created, everybody worried that was going to take away jobs. When the automobile was created, that was taking away jobs. We've seen this over and over and over again throughout human history. And ChatGPT and AI are creating jobs, obviously. 
that didn't used to exist. And there's going to be jobs three or five years from now that we can't even dream of right now that are going to exist. Right now, one of the hottest jobs is a prompt engineer. You know, we weren't talking about that a year ago or two years ago, right? So it's a natural evolution and there's going to be something even other technologies that come along and create the same phenomena. And I think the smart companies, their workforce recognizes that they're going to embrace it. They're going to help upskill and reskill the workforce to take advantage of the new opportunities going forward. Great. Something I'd like to ask, and you really come from a very unique background as an entrepreneur, but also someone that have seen a lot of successful companies, a lot of challenges in companies, right? Especially when you talk about the only 10% of culture changes actually go through. What is maybe an advice that you got early as a leader that you carry with you and you think is worth sharing forward? I'm a big believer in culture as a driver of good company. And our research shows it. We find that companies that have healthy cultures outperform companies that don't by a factor of 6x, right? So six times. And, you know, I think for any entrepreneur, anybody who's working in a company, It's just important to pay attention to that. And there are aspects of a healthy culture that our research again has laid out, one of which I love is transparency. I think that's always a critical one. I run my company on an open book policy and we go over the financials every month because I want people to just understand how are we doing. I want them to know when we're doing well and know when we're not. And it's the same in most companies. The more you can sort of eliminate rumors or misinformation, the healthier you're going to be as an organization. The more that you can create an environment that is accountable to their goals and one that doesn't tolerate brilliant jerks. We've seen that a lot in companies because that ruins cultures as well. The means is just as important as the end. And so you want to make sure that you've got people that are living your values and behaving the way you expect that you're not rewarding dysfunctional people inside your company because your company is going to become dysfunctional as a result. All of that's captured in a brand new report we just released called Culture Fitness, which is all about a healthy culture versus a toxic culture. And if you're trying to create a financially sound company and a company that is going to continue to improve financially, focus first on the culture, and then the financial results will usually follow. Awesome. Well, Culture Innovation, where can people find this? All the usual spots, but we also have a dedicated website to the book at culturerenovation.com. And there's also additional information that's not included in the book out of that website, different case studies. There's a newsletter. There are some tools that people can use. So check it out. A lot of good resources there. Nice. And when people want to pick your brain or connect and talk through those things, are you in Twitter, LinkedIn? What's your medicine? All the usuals, yes. (laughs) So you'll find me on Twitter or LinkedIn or just even on our website at i4cp.com. Amazing. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you very much, Kevin. And really, really good practical tips. So everyone encourage you to go check out the book, check out the information. Very practical way to go and strive through these times and many other times. And so I appreciate your time. And thank you again for joining us today. No, thanks for having me on. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. 